HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. What I was observing, especially having worked in restaurants, were white chefs who went to the CIA, who did stages at, you know, top 100 restaurants, and then they were able to parlay that into, you know, their chef de cuisine positions. And then they would be bankrolled for some ridiculous sum of money for their new restaurant. They would have the PR lined up. They would have, you know, all the right journalists and the right food writers on deck. And then their restaurant was just deemed to be the next new thing. We all accepted at face value. And then you rinse and repeat with the next restaurant opening. I think there will be kind of a correction for some of the redundancy that we saw, which was perpetuated by the food media. Really, what we're just finally starting to see in food media is a proper reckoning and a proper accounting of credit and a more complete and honest narrative about the recipes that people profit off of, uh, whether it be through their own restaurants or increasingly through brands and media affiliations and, and platforms. That was Stephen Satterfield, co-founder of Whetstone Magazine. By now, many of us are experiencing quarantine fatigue. We may have grown comfortable with wearing masks and standing six feet apart, but as some states begin to reopen, people are left wondering if we can return to our pre-pandemic lives. This week, we're exploring the before and after. From restaurants adapting to a new normal and the evolving habits of composters to looking to the past so that we might learn from it, we will dive deep into a world of change. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. First, we look at how two restaurants are planning to reopen despite an uncertain future in a post-pandemic world. Before coronavirus in 2019, business was booming for the Namwa Tea Parlor in Manhattan's Chinatown. Like many restaurants in Chinatown, business drastically fell around the Chinese New Year when the virus began to spread. We took like a nosedive the first week, like close to 40% off. That was Wilson Tang, owner of the Namwa Tea Parlor. When we last saw Tang in episode 68 in mid-March, he was grappling with declining sales and an uncertain future. Two months later, on May 17th, he reopened for takeout and delivery, 
Now he's rethinking the business of restauranteering as New York begins to reopen. The first month, I was really concerned. You know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of overthinking. But I think as time wore on, you know, I was kind of just looking at ways to pivot. And uh, we, we figured out people were into frozen products. And we're working with co-packers to bottle our sauce, to work on our uh, consumer packaged goods. We worked on like our t-shirts and like our, our sweatshirts and gift cards. And we were, we were um, selling our chili oil. It was Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month this month. And I did a bunch of stuff with different collaborators and corporations to celebrate the, the, the month. In the coming months, he plans to collaborate more and is even releasing a cookbook in the fall. While his pivot has paid off, Tang is far from seeing his pre-pandemic sales. We kind of just started making pivots into like April and May. Things look a little better. We went from like 10% of the usual business now up to like 60% usual business. Now that Namwa has reopened, he hopes to take advantage of the New York City's Department of Transportation's open street plan, which is closed Doyer Street in front of the restaurant from traffic. This means no cars are allowed on the street and people can roam freely so long as they practice safe distancing. This could potentially provide restaurants the space for socially distant street dining. You know, the next part of this is seeing if we can work with the DOT to um, allow for like this kind of like picnic tables and chairs outdoors, which we've done in the past two summers. Uh, you know, we have some chairs out now just for people waiting for takeout. So we'll see how uh, if that gets approved or not uh, sometime in, in June. Before the pandemic, most of Tang's employees took the subway to work. But when COVID-19 began to spread throughout the city, his staff became concerned about their safety. Now, his staff is carpooling to avoid public transportation until it's safe, even though this means reducing business hours and reworking schedules so only a couple of employees work at the same time. He says that it's all worth it. When the subway is just kind of like a cesspool of, you know, virus and, you know, bacteria and whatnot, and when it's crowded, it's really crowded. You know, that was one component of it. Just random acts of racism um, on the trains was, was another thing. Um, their safety was important to me. The New York City government projects that it will reopen outdoor dining in early July, with indoor dining to reopen at an unknown later date. Even though things are looking up for Tang and the Namwa Tea Parlor, he isn't confident that reopening his dining area at a limited capacity will make much of a difference. Even if we were at 25% capacity or 50% capacity, you know, that doesn't work for the restaurant environment, uh, especially in New York, where, you know, profits are, are, are razor thin as it is. But like if you can't have a full dining room or you can't have the confidence of diners actually coming in, it, it, it's kind of tough. You know, we just kind of have to see how it goes and what the, what the numbers look like. You know, it's a numbers game at the end of the day and, and the confidence of, of my staff coming in. While restaurants have yet to fully reopen in New York, they can look to states like Ohio where in-house dining is now allowed to get a glimpse of what the industry might look like after the coronavirus. Jeremy Omansky owns Larder Delicatessen and Bakery in Cleveland, Ohio. Since reopening his business in April, he shifted from a large menu of house-made breads, mustards, and deli meats to a limited menu for an entirely takeout and delivery-based business model. We normally have a nine-foot deli case. So at any given time, that deli case, we would have a dozen different types of fermented pickles that we produce. We'd have four to six different types of seasonal deli salads, and then we'd have a dozen different types of different charcuterie that we make. 
we basically had to not do any of that. Uh, we pared it down to coleslaw and potato salad and two pickles. On May 21st, when Ohio announced it would allow restaurants to reopen their dining rooms along social distancing guidelines, Umansky realized that he lacked the space for socially distant dining. To make up for this, he opened up his patio for only a few guests at a time and now allows people to eat on the sidewalks outside of his store. Our whole space is 1,500 square feet. Our dining room's about two-fifths of that, and the rest is kitchen. So our dining room's only 26 seats, and we only have one entrance. And our deli counter is like smack in the middle on the back side of the dining room. So I literally do not have the square footage to allow a line to come in or people to come in and pick up orders and set up tables at a safe distance for people to dine in. Before the pandemic, Umansky experienced record sales. But now business is slower than it has been in years. So, for the foreseeable future, he plans to double down on delivery and takeout until it's safe to fully reopen their dining room. So we were thought we were into this next tier of new normal for us as a business. And we're kind of feels like we're back to right when we opened, where we'd have like a $400 day and be like, oh my God, this can't keep happening. But we're, we're stable right now. While the curve is flattening in both Manhattan and Cleveland, Wilson Tang and Jeremy Umansky are taking it one day at a time as they grapple with the uncertainty of a post-pandemic business. For our next story, Will Hartman talks to Ashley Weld about how waste management has adjusted throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. With the increase in time spent at home, we are constantly reminded of how much waste we produce. To combat this, many have turned towards composting. This process of recycling food scraps allows organic material to decay into useful fertilizer. I spoke with Ashley Weldy, co-founder of We Future Cycle, an organization that educates and changes school rubbish strategies and is based in Westchester County, New York. She had a few surprising insights on just how beneficial composting can be. In Westchester County, we've seen an uptick in residential composting because I think people are just at home. They're more aware of their food waste. They've heard about this composting program. They think eh, the same way people are you know, starting to bake bread and they think that's something I'll try during the pandemic. They're like, I've heard about this composting. This is a good time for me to actually look into it and try. So we've seen an increase in people signing up for our program to do the residential composting where they bring their food scraps to our town hall. But you can compost very easily at home. Um, I compost right here in my backyard. While Ashley is citing evidence from elementary schools, the principle remains. Composting reduces the amount of material that ends up uselessly rotting in landfills. Ashley reflected on how the composting process has come to work on a more personal scale throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. We find that 95% of the leftover lunch material can be recycled or composted. And we find this in every school. It's amazing how consistent it is. So, you know, there's a school that has, you know, 100 pounds of waste every, every day, which is very common in an elementary school, if not much more. They'll only have, you know, three or five pounds of waste after lunch period just because of us teaching the kids how to sort their leftovers and primarily the compostables, which are the heaviest component of any lunch left over. So we go in and teach kids how to how to do the sorting. We work with the custodians so that they know how to process it on the back end. We help set up the whole operational logistical um, issues to make it all smoothly work. 
Ashley sees a positive trend in how we're relating to our waste. However, food waste isn't the only category where progress can be made. The more time people spend at home, the more they realize that certain things are out of order. Ashley remains optimistic about how she believes our new normal will shift conversations about sustainability. I think I see more upside than downside, you know, in terms of the waste stream, but also in terms of even people being at home and they hear landscapers out there with gas blowers, which are, you know, not good for our air pollution. And I think people hear them all day when they're trying to work at home and realize you know, this is something that has to be changed. I think that, you know, there have been a lot of reports about the challenges, especially with meat um, and the whole meat production process and how our food system is really broken. I mean, we waste 40% of the food created in this country before it even gets to our table. And I think that the pandemic is, you know, it's, it's awful, but the silver lining is that it's making people more aware of these systems that we take for granted that are really not functioning well and things that have to be changed in a very systemic way. I mean, it takes consumers, it takes government, it takes corporations, it takes everybody um, doing their part. This time stinks like a bag of rotting fruit, but recognizing how we can make it better makes it useful and productive kind of like compost. To learn more about how you can reduce your home's environmental footprint, visit wefuturecycle.com. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode of Meat and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Our next story looks to one of the most fundamental institutions in the fight against COVID-19, the soup kitchen. With over 33.5 million jobs lost and counting, food insecurity has become an important byproduct of the pandemic. We join A Taste of the Past host, Linda Palaccio, for a discussion on the early naissance of the soup kitchen and the historic food insecurity that catalyzed its birth. Linda is joined by Stephen Henderson, author of The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, Soul-Stirring Lessons in Gastrophilanthropy. Our history in America comes from... Great Britain, and in the United Kingdom, the idea of soup kitchens basically came about as a result of the Industrial Revolution. Say, I mean, you know, 1760 to 1820, 1830, 40, changed the course of history from basically hand production and agrarian, you know, hand-to-mouth culture to a form of production that relied on machines. That brought about big social change of Yes, increased productivity, but also uh, a rise in population and greater income inequity 
that then created a greater need for hunger relief in Britain. And so at the basically the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, the, the British government had to figure out ways to feed poor people in England and Wales and Scotland. And some historians suggest that at the beginning of the 19th century, over 60,000 people a day were being fed in London alone. And soup was cheap. It was easy to make. It could be stretched with water. It could sit, you know, hot for a long period of time without drying out. And if it was served with a piece of bread, it could constitute a meal. Soup kitchens became so popular in the United Kingdom that the government actually disbanded them due to a fear of system abusers. Fortunately, a decade later, soup kitchens returned in even larger form, thanks to a Frenchman named Alexis Soyer. As I said, he was a Frenchman. He got to London as a young man, and he eventually gets himself a job cooking at the Reform Club, which was a gentleman's club on Pall Mall in London, basically patronized, and members were the richest and most powerful men, not only in England, but really the world at that point. And he builds a kitchen at the Reform Club that was truly a wonder of the world. I mean, people would come to see this kitchen. Uh, Alexis Soyer literally invented cooking with gas, among other things. He invented kitchen timers and, you know, all these things. And so at a certain point in the Irish potato famine, he goes to these rich guys who he's cooking for. And again, it was all men. And he said, I'm going to go to Dublin and I'm going to take everything I've learned building this kitchen here and I'm going to create a cooking machine that will allow me to feed hundreds of thousands of people in Dublin that are starving and are going to die unless we do something. And so these rich guys all said, go ahead, you know, we'll fund you and we'll, you know, make do with less fancy food while you're gone. And so that's what he did. So basically... I say he invented the soup kitchen because he invented this system of mass cookery that allowed him to churn out endless seatings of 600 meals of soup and bread over and over and over again for days on end in Dublin during the Irish potato famine. To hear more about the history of soup kitchens, listen to episode 351 of A Taste of the Past. For our final story, Kevin Chang Barnum talks to a bookseller about how changing cultural attitudes have affected his business. When I first started selling gastronomy, I have to tell you, I struggled with a number of major libraries because the people in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? Ben Kinmont is an antiquarian bookseller based in Sebastopol, California. He specializes in 15th to early 19th century books about food and wine. After working for a bookseller who concentrated on the history of science, Ben started selling gastronomy books on his own in 1998. Gastronomy is an interdisciplinary field that looks at the relationship between food and culture, For a long time, research libraries were skeptical that Ben's books were worth studying. And finally, after about 10 or 15 years, they finally started to come around. That change was partly due to a general increased interest in food, but it also corresponded with a shift in academia. Ben says people who had been trained to study disenfranchised groups 
were becoming faculty members at universities. They started asking new questions about which subjects to focus on. Let's just take the 17th century, you know, should we, or the early 18th century, should we look at that era and say, oh, it's most important because of what Newton was doing? Or should we look at it and say, well, actually, let's talk about the food that was being eaten by 90% of the people in that at that time period. Even with these shifting attitudes, Ben says many researchers aren't aware that they can study material about people from varying economic backgrounds. And there's this sort of assumption that we can only speak about gastronomy on this level of sort of haute cuisine or the most expensive and highest level of food preparation, which of course is bullshit. Ben has had books from the early 19th century, for instance, written by people trying to reform debtors' prisons in England. And, and it's, you know, it's devastating how little food they were being given. It was just pieces of bread and basically beer. The books that Ben sells reflect the opinions of people from a range of nationalities, time periods, and communities. I'm finding and, and describing and selling books that are, for example, the first cookbooks ever written for soup kitchens. I even have a few things that relate to the Black Panther Party's uh, free breakfast program that they organized in the 60s and 70s. Ben says it still takes some effort to convince libraries of the importance of his material. Despite those challenges, his books have received a positive response from universities lately. Students at schools like the University of Delaware now study his books. The students are happy to see the material. The scholars are really happy to use the material and to have that to be able to do further research on. Being an antiquarian bookseller is about more than just buying and selling books. For Ben, shaping the way people understand history is an integral part of the job. We're not just following a trend or we're not just um, hoping that someone will find something of interest. We're actually taking an active role through dialogues with the professors, with the librarians, with our collectors as to what's of interest and what's what people are noticing. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Will Hartman, Emily Kunkel, and Bryce Baiecki. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.